Deputy muted. And recording's in progress. <clears throat> right. Where are we holding? It's been a few weeks. So I'll tell you where we're holding. First of all, this this year is Ilurish Nishmosov, Ephraim Shmuel ben Avram Ariya Cohen, and Chaya Tova Bas Eliezer Mendel Cohen on the book of Yechezkel. We're currently holding in chapter nine, um, verse six. And just going to uh, review verse six and pick up from where we left off last time. Um, Yechezkel is being given, Yechezkel is currently in Babylonia and he's been visited by the elders of Yehuda, who are also currently in Babylonia in the exile, approximately five years before the, the destruction of the temple. And uh, they've come to discuss with Yechezkel whether God um, is still serious about his plan to destroy Yushalayim and to destroy the temple. After all, it's been many years since the Babylonians have taken control and they've shown no sign of uh, destroying Jerusalem or the temple. And they want to know if that plan is still on the table. Yechezkel, uh, in his home, has been whisked away in a prophetic vision. And he is seen in chapter 8, he is seen various um, aspects of idol worship going on in and around the temple. And here in chapter 9, he's been given a vision of the actual destruction. And he sees the actual destruction in an allegorical vision of six destroyers, six angels, six destroyers coming to Yushalayim and killing people. And the seventh angel... Um, who is there, so to speak, to keep the score dressed in white. And his job is to keep the score and write everything down and record all the events. And of course, uh, we know that when it comes to the destruction of Yushalayim and the base of Migdosh, it's not angels that do it. It's actually the Babylonian soldiers that do it. What Yechezkel is seeing is an allegorical representation of the destruction um, as seen through um, a vision that is designed to frighten the life out of him, as we're going to see. And God instructs these six angels to destroy Yerushalayim. And um, originally, the intention was that all the righteous people should be saved and all the wicked should be killed. And here in verse 6, which is a critical verse in this chapter, we read the following. God says, Zokain, Bochor, Basula, Bataf, Noshim, Tahargu. Old men, young men, young women, virgins, young children, and the regular women should be killed. Lamashchis, uh, destroyed. Baalkol Isha, Sha'alov, Hitav, Hatav. Anyone that has got a a taf, a letter taf on their forehead, do not touch them. In other words, don't kill them. And then the whole essence of the verse changes uh, changes shape. Begin at my sanctuary. Begin at the base of Migdosh. Begin the destruction of Yerushalayim at the base of Migdosh. Um, 
So the destroyers began the destruction and the, the uh, assassination and the massacre of the Jews of Yushalayim from outside the temple itself and the Gomorrah. This is where we got up to last time. The Gomorrah says this verse indicates a change of process, a change of mind, so to speak, from God. Originally, all the righteous were to be saved. They would have, as the Gemara describes, they would have a taf, the letter taf on the forehead inscribed in ink that would alert the, the destroyers to leave them alone. And then, uh, and the uh, wicked people would have a tav of blood written on their foreheads uh, to indicate to the destroyers that they're the people to be killed. But then God changes his mind in the middle of the verse. And the Gemara says, don't read the, the word from my temple uh, begin, but it should be translated. Start with my holy ones. Start with the righteous ones. Kill the righteous ones first. So we have a situation where it seems from the Gemara's perspective that we have uh, people in Yerushalayim with a, a tab on the head uh, in ink who should be saved, uh, a tab on the head in blood who should be killed, and then God changes his mind and decides that everybody should be killed. That's what the Gemara says. And the last year, uh, if you want to revisit it, we discussed this idea of God changing his mind. Why, why it was that God changes his mind in this particular case, as the Gemara points out, this is the only occurrence in Tanakh where God issues a decree of mercy and then rescinds it and everybody, uh, present ends up getting killed. Um, that, that's something we discussed last time and it can be revisited by going back to the, the previous year. I don't know what number it was, 80 something. Um, but, yeah, what number was it? Yeah, number 90, actually. That was the last year. Uh, or number 87, uh, by your count. Um, or year 90, year 87. I'm not sure which one it was, but it's certainly the last year. Where we got up to last time is we're, we were about to have a discussion of why in this verse um, we're left with two questions. Question number one is, what is the significance of the letter Tav? Why is the letter Tav written on the heads of both the sinner, the wicked people, and the righteous people? Um, and um, the the general answer the Gemara gives is the Tav stands either for Tichyeh, you will live, or Thomas, Tamut, you will die. And the question is, you know, why, 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 why this letter? What's so specific? What's special about this letter Taf? Um, apart from the fact that you could make the word Tichyer or Thomas, um, you could, you could use a nun and use the word Nichyer. We will live or Nomos, we will die. Um, and rather than the letter Taf. So why, what's specific about the letter tap? And the second question was that we hadn't dealt with yet. Why was the letter tap, Tichia, that they should live, written on the heads of the tzaddikim in ink? 
Well, the letter Tamut, Tamus, the Taf of Tamus, was written on the heads of the Rishoyim in blood. So this, these are the two questions that we haven't dealt with yet. Everything else, I think we've dealt with pre, in previous Shirim. Um, there's already questions here. Said God doesn't change his mind. What was different on this occasion? Who wrote that? Yeah. Ed, Irwin, we dealt with this in great detail in the last, um, in the last year. You'll have to revisit. I'm not going to go through it again. Uh, God did not change his mind. Uh, you'll, you'll have to, I, 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 we don't have time to go through all that again. It's, it's, it's absolutely clear. If you, if you go back to the previous year, I go through the reasons in great detail. God actually didn't change his mind. This was the plan all along. And, um, it involves a, a discussion, a philosophical discussion that God has with, so to speak, his wills. God has various wills. Um, and as the Ramchal points out on many occasions, very often you'll find that God doesn't have just one will. God has many wills. And very often the wills themselves contradict each other. So that God's um, expression of his will will often seem like a uh, contradiction to us. But in terms of the way God works, there is no contradiction. I explained that in great detail last time. Uh, Gila says, so nice to see your face. Gee whiz, I wish my wife would say that. Um, will I tilt the screen so we can see you all? Um, better. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. That's better. Okay. So why is it? Why is, let's deal with the first question first. <clears throat> the first thing to note is the, the Gemara, um, the opinion that we express in the Gemara is not a unanimous opinion. Um, the Gemara is not unanimous in its opinion that the Tav represents Tichye, you will live, or Tamus, Tamut, you will die. That's just one opinion expressed in the Gemara. Uh, there are other opinions expressed in the Gemara. I'll quickly run through them. <clears throat> the Gemara brings the opinion of Rav. Rav is the one that we've talked about already. Rav says Tav is the first letter of the word Tichye, you will live, indicating that the righteous Originally, we're destined to live. Tav is the first letter of the word tamut, tamus, you will die, implying that the wicked people will be all be dispensed with in the destruction of Yushalayim. That is the opinion that we've dealt with so far. Um, the other opinions in the Gemara is the opinion of Shmuel. The opinion of Shmuel is that the letter Tav is the first letter of the word tama, meaning to stop, to cease. Uh, the Torah says, uh, when the Torah describes the tochacha, the uh, rebuke and the punishment that will come to Israel when they uh, uh, sin against God and it all piles up and they're due to be destroyed, the Torah says, that uh, there'll be nothing you'll be able to do about it. And uh, all your all your attempts to avoid the punishment that's coming to you, the tam lorik kochacha, will be in vain. You'll, you won't be able to put off um, the punishment that's coming to you. Uh, and that's the language that the Torah uses. And Shmuel says the taf here 
refers to that idea, Tama, that uh, there's no way of avoiding this this decree against Yerushalayim and against the base of Midrash is Tama. It's uh, irreversible, um, indicating, says Shmuel, that the merit of the patriarchs has ceased and will not help the wicked. That's the opinion of Shmuel. That's what the, the taf on the head of the wicked stands for. The Gemara says in the name of Rabbi Yochan, on the letter tab is the first letter of the word tachon, to have mercy, um, uh, indicating the opposite to what Shmuel said, that due to the merit, due to the merits of the patriarchs, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, God will have mercy, not on the wicked, but on the righteous. So you have a tab indicating tamah, that the wicked can't avoid it, and a tav indicating tachon, chanun, uh, tachon, that you will be, uh, you will have mercy thrust upon you in the merits of the forefathers if you are a righteous individual. That's the opinion of Rabbi Elchanan. The opinion of Reish Lakish, again, a fourth opinion here, is the letter tav is the last letter of the seal of God. It's the last letter of the the word MS, the, which is which ends with the letter Tav. And I don't know exactly what, what he's getting at there. There's a piece there, uh, a Kabbalistic piece, which I don't really understand. But that's the opinion of Reish Lakish, that the Tav is the last letter of the word MS, which is a seal of God, mean, meaning again that this decree cannot be reversed. It's MS. It's set in stone. And finally, there's a, an opinion by Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani in the Gemara, uh, is that the letter Taf on the heads of the righteous teaches us that these people who observe the entire Torah, me Aleph letaf, from Aleph, from the first letter to the last letter, they will be, originally, they were uh, going to be saved. But of course, uh, at the end of the day, everyone was destroyed. Now, that, those are the opinions in the Gemara. Now let's get to uh, the Ica of these questions. Um, so the Ben Yoda suggests the answer to both these questions. Why the letter Tav? Uh, why ink? And why blood? And he says like this, Benira Ode. It appears to me more, more, more like this. Hold on, let me just mute everybody again because more people have joined. Uh, Okay. He says, Venerally, oh, it appears to me to, there's more going on here than meets the eye. Um, regarding the letter Taf, Ki Hatzadik Nikra Maskil. The, uh, a righteous man is considered to be a maskil, someone who's wise and educated and knows how to conduct his life. And he says the gematria of maskil is 400. That's what the letter Taf on the heads of the Sadiqim indicate, that this individual is a masculine. He not uh, masculine in the sense of the reform movement, but masculine in the sense of someone who knows what life's all about. He's tuned in to what God requires. And masculine, mem, 40, sin, shin, sin is 300, that's 340. Kaf is 20, 360. Yud is 10. 370 and Lamed is 30 is 400. Shehoya Mispatav, that is the letter Tav, which is the, the numerical value of 400. 
And the Rosha is the opposite way round. Instead of reading the word maskil for someone who, who knows and keeps God's word and knows how to conduct his life, change the letter, the order of the letters in the word, word to a machshil, a stumbler, a failure. Shehu gam came to mitzvatav, which is also the uh, letters of, uh, creates the numerical value of 400, which is the letter tav. O yovin, or understand it like this, korov lezed de isab otios de rabbi akiva, tav romeses latora. A tav, is is the first letter of the word Torah. And that's why there was a tav written on the heads of the tzaddikim in ink. Why? Because the Torah itself is written in dio. The Torah itself is written in, in ink. And we know that Esau, the wicked Esau, came to meet Yaakov with 400 men by his side, 400 soldiers. Uh, his original idea was to, to destroy Yaakov and kill everybody in the camp. And that, the Tav, written in blood, is reminiscent of Esau, that these people who are destined to be de- to die uh, have, brought, have brought blood on the Jewish people, the same way that Esau intended to bring blood onto the house of Yaakov. And that is represented by this posuk here, where God commands these, um, where God commands the seventh uh, angel, who's dressed in white, to write a uh, tab in blood on the heads of the Rishoyim. They are considered to be from the family of Esau. Esau represents blood. Esau sone as Yaakov. Esau hates Yaakov. And as a result of that, the letter is written in blood. 400, representing the 400 soldiers of um, Esau that came, to, that came to, originally came to destroy uh, Yaakov's, um, Yaakov's camp and wipe out everybody in it. So that uh, there's another reason as well, another Kabbalistic reason that um, the the word for Torah is Mayim. We know that the Gemara says Ain 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 Torah. When the word Mayim occurs, it's talking about Torah. So for people who are standing on the outside trying to get inside the Torah, trying to learn the Torah. So if you put the word Taf, the letter Taf, outside the word Mayim you get tamim, people who are perfecting themselves, and uh, they're due to be saved. But if you take people who who try to go inside the Torah and make a mess of it, in other words, say they're inside the Torah with trying to pervert what it says, then you change the word mayim to mesim. It's the same word, mayim, but you've got to tap inside it. And therefore, you've got the word mesim. These are the people who pervert the words of the Torah. They, they try to go inside the Torah and pervert it, changing the word from mayim with the taf to mesim.
that uh, bringing death upon themselves. So all in all, despite our best efforts, this verse remains, I mean, even with all the explanations from the previous year, which I, you know, I encourage people because of the the time lapse between the previous year and this year to, uh, to, to go over. Um, and even if, if, even if you go back and, and uh, re, re-listen to that shear, uh, this verse here, verse six, remains extremely difficult to understand. Um, and hopefully at the end of the story, at the end of the chapter, we'll attempt to reconcile um, all the pieces and produce some sort of competent, comprehensible message emanating from the totality of Yechezkel's vision. But at the moment... We're in the, in the middle of Yechezkel's vision. So what we are required to do is re, we're required to complete the vision. And then at the end, we'll take stock and see exactly what the reason God is giving in this vision for. Remember, this is five years. He's seeing this vision five years before the destruction takes place. Why is God showing Yechezkel a vision of destruction five years early? Um what could what could possibly be gained by God showing him this vision? So that's something we're going to have to discuss later, later on. But th- that's later on. We'll, we'll have to complete the vision, and then we're going to review it. So just to put everything into perspective, at this moment in time, God has just dressed, addressed the man, the angel, who's dressed in white linen, who we said could be uh, Gabriel, uh, according to others, it is Michael, Gabriel being the angel of fire, the angel of destruction, and Michael being the angel, uh, the protector of Israel, the Tsar Yisrael. Um, but whoever it is, um, uh, it doesn't seem to be relevant at this point in the story. And he's instructed this particular individual, this particular member of this group of seven, the six destroyers, and this angel dressed in white to put the tabs, the letter tab on the foreheads of the people, and then instructed the six destroyers to begin the massacre of Yushalayim with the righteous people who are adjacent adjacent to the base of Migdash uh, itself. As the verse says, uh, the end of the verse says, Umi Migdoshi uh, Begin from, begin, there's two ways of understanding it. Both uh, can be uh, combined. Umi Migdoshi Tochelu, verse six, the end of verse six, uh, begin at my temple and begin with my righteous ones, Mimigdoshi or Mimigdoshai, begin at the temple and with my righteous ones. So by Yochelu, by Anoshim Hazakanim, the destroyers began their massacre of Yushalayim with the Zakanim, with the righteous men, Asherlifne Habayas, with the elders, the righteous elders. Uh, were uh, stationed themselves um, adjacent to the temple. So that's where we're up to. Now God, so to speak, doubles down on his orders to these uh, destroyers. He addresses the destroyers directly. And uh, Yechezkel is a um, silent witness to this these commands. So this is verse 7. And God said to them, God said to these destroyers, 
number one, defile the base of Mikdosh. In other words, defile the base of Mikdosh by killing all the people, the people around it and the people inside it. Make the base of Mikdosh tome. Make the base of Mikdosh piled up with corpses. Umilu esachatseros chalolim. And fill the courtyard with corpses. Now, now, when you've done that, um, go out, and they went out, and they attacked the city. In other words, they destroyed, they killed all the people in and around the temple. And then the then they went out and attacked the people inside the city of Yushalayim. And this is what Yechezka, and again, I have to be very clear here. This is not what happened. What happened, the, 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 the series of events and the course of events and, um, um, the, the destruction happened in this order, but it wasn't angels that were doing the destroying. It was the, um, Babylonian soldiers that did the destroying. So this is the command in the allegory. This is how Yecheskel is envisioning uh, the destruction of the base of Mikdosh or the destruction of the people around the base of Mikdosh and the people in the city of Yerushalayim. And he says, God commands a very strong language. Chimuwes Abayis. Make my house. Make the base of Mikdosh Tomek. Umiloes achatseres And fill... The halls filled the courtyards of the base of Mikdosh with corpses. So God commands that everyone be slaughtered and that the base of Mikdosh itself be completely tome, be defiled by piling up the corpses within the courtyards of the compound of the base of Mikdosh. And again, this is exactly what happened five years hence. Um, so that th- this description here uh, in verses six and seven of old men, young men, women, children, and everything in between being slaughtered outside the base of Migdosh and also within the confines of the base of Migdosh and within the city is a horrifying experience for Yecheskel. Um, Yecheskel's describing a situation where the defilement of the base of Migdosh is caused by divine command that people be killed and their corpses be, be piled up in its co- compound. Um, and this is a situation unparalleled in the Tanakh. How can it be that God commands an action that will re- result in the defilement of his own place, of his own house, of the base of Migdosh, which actually contravenes a Torah command that the sanctity of the base of Migdosh must be strictly preserved? This is a, 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 uh, a negative commandment in the Torah that God seems to be breaking through his own word. The Posikim Vayikra in chapter 21, verse 23, is very clear. My Beit HaMikdosh should never be desecrated. And here God is commanding the destroyers to go into the base of Mikdash and not only desecrate it, but pile up the corpses inside it. Um, so this is a, a, a really difficult question. It, it goes to the, to the question is, um, you know, um, does God have to obey his own rules? And uh, 
to a certain extent he does, and to a certain extent he doesn't. But the idea of him ordering um, the destruction and the desecration of his own temple, when he actually commands in the Torah that that is not a an option for anybody, um, that is something that needs to be discussed. And uh, to address that question, we have to recall a few things. Number one, the base of Migdash has already been defiled. This isn't a, a defilement um, of the base of Migdash in and of itself, per se. The base of Migdash has already been defiled because of the deeds of the nation that were discussed in chapter 8. Um, uh, foremost among these uh, uh, desecrations of the base of Migdash were outlined in great detail in chapter 8. If you remember in chapter 8, uh, Yechezkel recorded his four visions of paganism in, in the, in, in the base of Migdosh and around the base of Migdosh. If you remember, the first one was the Semel, um, the, the, the statue that was placed outside the base of Migdosh, uh, by originally by King Menashe, the wicked King Menashe. And then later on, it was brought back by his followers. Uh, the second imagery that we have from chapter eight is the hidden room inside the Beit HaMikdosh, um, the room of paganism with the leaders of Israel taking part in pagan rituals. And then we had the, the imagery of the women crying over the idol or the false prophet of Tammuz uh, outside the Beit HaMikdosh. And then finally, the worst of all, we had the men worshipping the sun while defecate inside the base of Migdosh with their backsides to the base of Migdosh. Uh, remember the base of Migdosh, the Kodesh Kadoshim was in the west, the sun was in the east, and they, they would lay down on the floor and worship the sun with their backsides to the Kodesh Kadoshim, to the Holy of Holies. And while worshipping the sun as part of the pagan ritual, they would defecate towards the Kodesh Kadoshim. So we already have a situation where the base of Midrash has already been defiled by the Jews themselves. That's one thing to take into consideration. Um, the second thing to take into consideration is, is a base of Migdosh a base of Migdosh without God in it? And what we do know is that God is commanding this slaughter um, uh, after his glory, so to speak, his presence, his Shekhinah, is no longer present because we're already been told in verse three that uh, if you turn to verse three, uh, chapter nine, verse three for, for a second, it says, Ukavod Yisrael nala mi'al God, God's presence had already left its resting place inside the Kodesh Kadoshim. So at this stage, it could be argued that uh, a base of Migdosh is only a base of Migdosh, is only considered to be a, a temple, a holy place, when God's presence is there. But uh, when God's presence has left, the base of Migdosh is just considered to be a collection of bricks and wood, like any other building, with no intrinsic Kedusha or sanctity uh, at all. So that is, those are two things to consider. Number one, that the defilement is not God's doing here. God is just continuing uh, to um, exacerbate something that the Jews started already, the defilement of the temple. 
And secondly, at this stage, after they, the Jews had defiled the temple, God had already made his plans to, to leave. As we saw in the first chapter, God packed his bags and left on his chariot. He loaded up and he left. So at this point in time, the base of Mikdosh, in certainly from Yechezkel's perspective, is a place that is just bricks and mortar and wood and would appear to have no intrinsic Kedusha at all. Um, which begs the question nowadays, what sort of Kedusha the Temple Mount has, which is a, uh, a political question as well as a religious question. There are those that, that say that um, there's in, still intrinsic Kedusha on the Temple Mount, and therefore it's absolutely forbidden. This is a Pesach of uh, Rabbi Badia, Rabbi Moshe, um, various others that it's absolutely forbidden to go up to the Temple Mount because we're Tome. Uh, all human beings nowadays are Tome, are, are defiled by the fact that we've uh, certainly at some stage come into contact with people that uh, are, are dead. We've been to graveyards and we are incapable of removing that Tumas Mace, that defilement as a result of being in contact with a dead body uh, because we don't have the Poraduma. The Poraduma is the only mitigation it's the only way of re- removing this high level of tumor so we're all tome so it's uh for those that hold that the temple mount has got still got its intrinsic kedusha uh it's it would be absolutely forbidden uh as Rabbi Moshe points out Rabbi Vajir points out to go up to the temple mount there are others that say no we know exactly where the Kodesh Kadoshin was and as long as you avoid that spot, then it's perfectly permissible for people to go up. That's an ongoing discussion um, between different factions within the religious world. But from, from our perspective, it would seem for two reasons um, that God has decided that the base of Midrash should be defiled. Number one, because it's already been defiled already by the Jews. All God is doing is punishing them through their own defilement defiling it more by punishing them for their defilement. And secondly, um, the base of Mikdash at this particular point in time, it lacks God's presence. And with it lacking God's presence, it's no different from any other structure. And therefore, there would be no uh, problem. Um, well, there would be a problem, but it's very unfortunate. But there'd be no halachic problem in these angels piling up the corpses inside the base of Mikdash. And again, uh, as I'll remind you all the way through this chapter, Yecheskel is seeing an allegorical representation of what would and could actually happen. Now, would and could are two very different words. Um, would imp- implies that this is, a, is exactly what is going to happen with the uh, angels being replaced by Babylonian soldiers, could implies that there, sh- there might be a way of mitigating all this destruction. So the words would and could are, are vital here. And as we'll see later on, they go to the very heart of why God is showing Yecheskel this vision five years before the base of Mikdosh, the temple was actually destroyed. Um and uh, we see uh, from the book of Chronicles, from the book of Divrei Hayomim, in the second book of Divrei Hayomim, 
that what Yechezkel is seeing here is not an exaggeration of the events that eventually did take place. And again, that begs the question is why God is showing it to him now five years before. Uh, and again, that goes to the words would and could. Is there something here that God is showing Yechezkel that he could pass on to the Jews, particularly the Jews of Yushalayim, that over a five-year period, they could certainly mitigate um, the level of destruction that he is seeing now in this vision. The reality is that nothing changed. And that is brought out in Divrei Hayomim, whether Yechezkel had the ability to um, uh, create some level of teshuva that would mitigate. He couldn't. He, he didn't have the power to bring them to, to teshuva, the Jews of Yushalayim to teshuva, to the extent that they could escape the destruction and the exile. But it could be that he had the power to instigate a level of teshuva that would have mitigated all this destruction. But what we see from Divrei Hayomim is whether Yechezkel uh, rebuked them or he didn't rebuke them, they seem to have paid no attention. Because in Divrei Hayomim, the destruction is described as this. This is Divrei Hayomim, the second book of Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 17. And God brought upon them the king of the Kastim, the king of the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar. And he killed all the young men by the sword. The base Migdoshon, inside their temple. So this is exactly what God is saying five years earlier. It's going to happen or could happen. And they, the soldiers, the Babylonian soldiers had no pity. Not on the youth, not on the virgins, not on the older people, not on the elders, the tzaddikim. And everyone was delivered into the hands of the king of Babylonia. So we see that uh, although it could be that uh, one of the reasons why God is showing Yechezkel this vision, this, this horrific vision, um five years before it actually takes place, it could be that God, so to speak, would like Yechezkel to put the fear of God, so to speak, into the inhabitants of Yehuda and Yerushalayim. Whether he does or not, it's quite clear from what actually happened, from the description of what happened when the Babylonians did break through into the city and did, did get the order to wipe out the inhabitants and destroy the temple that they uh there had been there was no mitigating circumstances um finally in this verse it says now once you've done that once you've killed everyone in and around the base of Migdosh, the angels were commanded go out and do it uh, they went out and they attacked the city now after the base of Migdosh, you know it's not something we want to you know, envisage, not something we want to imagine. Uh, the, the imagery that Yechezkel is seeing, after the base of Migdosh was full of corpses, the destroyers were commanded to attack the city, the city uh, which they did. And as the Malbin points out, that Yechezkel saw in his vision 
that after the people of Yerushalayim witnessed the pandemonium and chaos going around the base of Migdash precincts, panic broke out. And as the, as the Malbin points out, he gets this from, from Divrei Chazal, it was not only the destroyers slaughtering the inhabitants of the city. It wasn't only the Babylonians slaughtering the inhabitants of the city. But the people of Yerushalayim themselves started the blame game. And it ended up, uh, unfortunately, with Jew killing Jew. As it says, Umisham, his pashtu ba'ir rahorgu ish es ochiv. That uh, there was tremendous chaos going on in the city. And it ended up with not only the, in Yechezkel's vision, not only did he see the angels destroying, killing all the people in the city, um, but he saw the Jews killing each other. And that's exactly what happened when the Babylonians broke through. That it uh, wasn't only the Babylonians that contributed to the massacre, but Jews were killing themselves, kill, killing each other. And there were Jews committing suicide. And there were Jews killing their children. And there was, you know, you just can't imagine what was going on uh, inside Yerushalayim. I mean, the best uh, analogy you can you can make, because it's, it's almost identical, is to imagine what a concentration camp must have been like. And, uh, you know, when the, or uh, the ghetto, the Warsaw ghetto, when the Germans finally raided the ghetto and what happened there. And uh, if you, I mean, it's a hard thing to imagine and a hard thing to take in, but um, that's exactly what happened. And so that, that here we have a pause now in Yecheskel's vision. Um, and of course, like anybody, like any human being, um, any sensitive human being, uh, um, and particularly a prophet, not only a prophet, but the leader of Israel. Yechezkel is the leader of the Jewish people at this point in history. Uh, Yechezkel is obviously not unmoved by what he's seeing. So if you look at verse 8, uh, you see Yechezkel's response here. Vayihika hakosom v'neshar oni. Listen how he describes it. He says, this is Yechezkel speaking. Uh, and when they attacked, when these angels attacked and killed everybody, um, and I was there. I, I was the only one there. Like I'm, I was the only survivor. Like he sees it. He's, he's, his imagery is so, is so, um, has got so much vitality to it. It's so real to him that he's actually there. He says, it appeared to me that I was the only survivor. Uh, and I fell on my face. And I cried out. And I said, Lord God, Hashem, Adonai Elohim, Master. Elohim is the language of uh, uh, God in strict justice. Hamashchis atah kol sheiris Yisrael. Are you intending to destroy the entire remnant of Israel? When you pour out your fury on Yerushalayim. 
So this is Yechezkel's response. When the destroyers attack the city, Yechezkel, he's there. The vision's so real. And um, he's standing uh, around as all the violence is going on. And standing next to him are Jews being slaughtered. Violence, chaos. Jews killing Jews, Babylonian, the angels slaughtering people. And as a, the Barbanel gives you a, an insight into, into, into Yechezkel here. Yechezkel sees the mayhem. Everyone around him is being slaughtered. He's the only one not. No one's attacking him, obviously, because no one can see him. He's, he's only there. Um, uh, as part of his own vision. And the Barbanel says, at that moment, Yechezko realized that the original plan, which was to write the letter Tav on the heads of the people to indicate who should be killed and who should not be killed, that that plan was eventually abandoned. And as, as a result of that, he fell on his face with Tzach. He cried, Aha, Hashem Elohim, Amashkis Atos, Kol Sheirish Yisrael. Are you going to destroy everybody? That's how it appeared to him, that everyone was doomed. Koloma, Kivan Shisivisa, Shalom Yinotzel, Mishalom Yohol Atav Al-Matzcho, Velo Nichtova Atav B'Metzach Shum Odom Yushalayim. I'm looking around and I can't see a tab. The original plan was a tab. The letter tab, I can't see it. I can't see a letter tab on anybody's head. The only thing I can work out from this, from what I'm seeing, is that everybody's going to die here. Everyone in, in Yerushalayim, everyone in Yehuda, every, all the Jews, everyone's going to die. And uh, he, he says to himself, I, I, is this is this the end of the road? Is this the end of the road for Israel? After all, the ten tribes have already gone, uh, and um, the only the only Jews left the only Jews left in the world are those that are already in exile in Babylonia. Maybe they're going to be killed next. What's is this the end of the road? That's that's the feeling he's getting. I see a Barbanel. He gets a feeling that this is the end of the road for for the Jews. And the end of the road for the project, the project of Naseb and Ishmael. It's all over. It's all, all over bar the shouting. The fat lady is already on stage. And that's the view of the, uh, the Abarabanel. That's the view. That's what's going through Yechezkel's mind as he bows down to the ground and appeals, seems to appeal to God, to pray to God, like uh, a rhetorical question. Is it your intention to destroy everything you've built? Everything you've constructed for the last 850 years or 890 years, if you take in from the period that the Torah was given, it's 890 years since the Torah had been given. Is this the end of the road? So that's, that's his question. That's the Abarbanel. So Abarbanel understands his question here. There's a Medrash here in Eichop. Yeah, you'd imagine it would come from Eichop from the Book of Lamentations. Um, and the, the Medrash there explains that the language of Sha'iris Yisrael is referring to the righteous. And Yechezkel is asking about Sha'iris Yisrael here, 
Is it your intention to destroy Sha'iris Yisrael? Meaning, uh, do you need to, is it, is it absolute, do you feel it's, he's appealing to God. Do you feel it's absolutely necessary to kill the righteous among the wicked as well? Is that, is that correct? Is that, is that appropriate? How do you rationalize that? Um, but we know from our previous discussion why God changed course here and allowed everyone, including the righteous, to be annihilated. As the Mesudas David, oh, the Mesudas David here reminds us, Shalom that the righteous men of Yerushalayim, the righteous people of Yerushalayim, had a responsibility to rebuke the sinners. They had many occasions over the previous 850 years to rebuke the sinners of Yerushalayim and the righteous people throughout all those generations refused to do it. Even Shlomo HaMelech and the successors of Shlomo HaMelech, if you remember Shlomo HaMelech, um, for his wives, allowed them to have a hill outside overlooking Yerushalayim where they could worship idols. And... Uh, uh, in subsequent subsequent monarchies, subsequent uh, kings of Israel, of Yehuda, the southern kingdom, the Tanakh always makes the point that this particular king was very righteous, but he didn't remove the idols. He didn't remove the idols. He didn't remove the idols. It's a constant theme throughout the book of Malachim. And... Uh, what uh, the overriding opinion of most of the commentators is, why were the righteous destroyed? Shalom Michubahem. They had the opportunity to rebuke and try and change the course of the history of the Southern Kingdom and transform it from a pagan society into a Judaic society, even if it wasn't from, but to try and rebuke the people to give up their Avodah Zorah, to give up their paganism. And they didn't do so. That frightened of what would happen to them for, for various reasons. Um, they didn't, we all know there's always a good reason why you shouldn't criticize somebody else. Um, but there's a commandment in the Torah. The commandment in the Torah is There's a responsibility on a personal and a corporate level for Jews to rebuke other Jews if they're heading in the wrong direction. Um, and the righteous men, the righteous people of Yushalayim uh, and Yehuda had a responsibility throughout the ages, um, throughout the history of the Southern Kingdom, to rebuke the sinners, in, in, particularly in relation to paganism, and they didn't do it. Um, so this issue of how, when a person has the responsibility of rebuking a sinner is extremely complex. And uh, uh, the the language of the Matsudas David here, Shalom Michubahem, that um, the major reason why the righteous were caught up in the massacre together with the wicked, because Shalom Michubahem, they had the re- responsibility to um, rebuke and try and put an end to the paganism. Um, this this concept of rebuking people who are on the sinful path is extremely complex. And I, I want to deal with it um, a little bit um, because I think it's uh, it's it's really halakha lamaisa today. I mean, we live in a country, um, you know, where at least well over 50% of the country are not observant, uh, secular. 
So, you know, why why is it that we come home from shul on Shabbos and we have to cross the road and we see a guy driving a car, smoking a cigarette in his car? Why don't we tap on the window and tell him, you know, Shabbos, man, it's Shabbos. You're breaking Shabbos. You hired Misa. Why, why don't we do that? So the the responsibility of rebuking our fellow Jews, either on an, an individual uh, uh, an individual responsibility, or, uh, or to do so as a corporate body, as, a, as uh, uh, the religious uh, group uh, of Jews to rebuke uh, people who are uh, the community that are going down the wrong road, as we perceive it, or as the Torah perceives it. What, 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 when is that responsibility um, uh, activated? And when is that responsibility, um, when should that responsibility remain silent? So it's extremely uh, complex, and it revolves the understanding of one particular verse in the Torah, which I've mentioned already. Uh, I'll start on it. We, we're coming to the end of um, the shear. Um, but this is something, uh, the, the very fact that this is, seems to be, according to most commentators and Chazal, the major reason why the tzaddikim were wiped out in the destruction of the first temple is Shalom Michubahem, because they had the responsibility to rebuke the people and possibly change the course of, of the history of the southern kingdom, and they didn't. Um, it becomes incumbent on us to understand the concept of rebuking a fellow Jew, either from the perspective of an individual or perspective uh, of a community. Now, it all revolves around one verse in the Torah. And the Torah is... This, the Torah is very clear. This is the Apostle by Yikra in chapter 19, verse 17. You're not allowed to hate your brother in your heart. You must rebuke your fellow Jew who sins. In order that you don't bear sin on his account. Now, there's various parts to this verse, and um, it needs examining. So we'll start off, uh, and again, we'll review this next week because we're coming to the end of the year, and I want you people to ask the questions. So I'll finish off with uh, the, the, the halacha, the way the, the Rambam, uh, Maimonides, understands this verse. Um, this comes from the Mishnah Torah, or the Rambam's halachic work. It's from Hilchus Deus, uh, the laws of the foundations of the Torah. It's in the sixth chapter, the seventh uh, Mishnah. It says, it is a mitzvah, this is the words of the Rambam. It is a mitzvah uh, to hochiach You must rebuke your fellow Jew that is sinning and has sinning, has sinned or is following an improper path. An improper path refers to incorrect, incorrect, incorrect behavior, even if no actual violation of Torah law is involved. Again, the Rambam says, you must rebuke your fellow Jew that is sinning or has sinned or is following an improper, an improper path. The definition of an improper path refers to incorrect behavior even if no actual violation of Torah law is involved. And he says this is based on Gomorrah's in Brochos 
and in Arachin. And the Gemara said like this, you are obliged to attempt to correct the behavior of a Jew and to inform him that he is causing himself a loss. The word chait, which we translate as sin, in this verse is generally translated as sin, but should be translated as the word lack. Something's lacking. A chait is something that's lacking. And in his commentary in Pirkei Avos, in the Ethics of the Fathers, the Rambam elaborates on the complementary nature of these two interpretations. By sinning, a, poor, a person causes a real loss to himself and the entire world. It's the opportunity cost of doing an Avera. You've lost something. Says the Rambam. Well, we have time to read the whole Rambam here. In fact, yeah, no. In fact, I'll stop there and I'll I'll come back to this Rambam next week because this Rambam is extremely important and goes very deeply into the reason why under the the prevailing circumstances in Yerushalayim at the time of the destruction, there was a requirement for the Jewish people, for the tzaddikim of Yerushalayim, to take upon themselves the responsibility of of um, uh, rebuking uh, their own um, uh, citizens, their own uh, co-religionists in Yerushalayim, and that, and we'll deal uh, again. That's all based on this this presumption that the reason why the tzaddikim was killed was Shalom Michubah, that they they made no attempt in an in an eight hundred and fifty year period, and particularly the last four hundred and ten years. While the base of Middash was standing, they made no attempt. There was no attempt at a personal level, maybe one or two people, but certainly not on a national level or, or communal level to stop the downhill spiral to work towards almost uh, to the rampant paganism that was taking place in Yerushalayim and why, uh, as a result of that, they were punished. So we'll we'll deal with that issue. That's the first thing we'll deal with in Mitzvah next week, and try and understand why under these circumstances, remember, as I, I mentioned before, you're walking home from Shul and Shabbos, you've got no responsibility to tap on the window of a guy driving a car, smoking a cigarette, and telling him that it's Shabbos, and he's, you know, he should get out the car and go home, and uh, he should drop the cigarette and go home, and, uh, you know, daven and uh, make Kiddush. Um you don't, you've got no responsibility to do that. And the question is, why, why, why have you got no responsible to, responsibility to do that? But the Jews of Yerushalayim did have a responsibility to do that. And not only did they have a responsibility to do that, but they were also extremely severely punished. They were punished as if they were, they were the sinners themselves. So that's something we have to unravel. And uh, please God, we'll do so, um, next week. But, uh, I would, we seem to have run out of time very quickly. Um, seems to have flown. But if there are any questions at this point, now's the time. Not even, not even, not even the Leeds United fan has got anything to say. Well, I'm not surprised the Leeds United fan hasn't got anything to say. David Taylor. They're very quiet these days. Harry, yes. Just ask you one question. Sure. 
After in verse 11, we, we read, of course, that it has been signed by the, by the, the overseer of the people who are doing the killing. Um, and it says, you know, it says, I've done as you have commanded. Isn't that the full stop on the whole process? It can't. No, 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 no. We've not got to that yet. There's a, there's a, there's a twist in the tale here. Okay. There's a twist in the tale. There's a, there always is, right? This is uh, Tanakh, so Rob Hyde will tell you there's always a twist in the tale. It's, it's never, things are never as they seem. Okay, it's great to be back. Um, is there a question? Any questions here? Hold on. Is everyone having a lot of frozen screens? Is that, is that, can everyone hear me? Yeah, I don't think there was a problem. That was a long time ago. Okay. Um, Larry Lowenthal says that I'm having a problem understanding the opinion of those that use the tab both for the righteous and the wicked. Yes, it's, a, it's very, very complicated, Gamora. Unless you assume that those on the borderline, everyone would be destroyed. That's the opinion of the uh, of the Ben Yoda, which we discussed not last week, but not last time, but two times ago. Okay, uh, that's why we'll leave it. That's why we'll pick it up next week. Uh, I hope you've got the general picture. Everyone's dead. Well, almost everyone's dead inside Yerushalayim, as far as Yecheskel can see. And um, the question is, the question is why? And that's the that's the million dollar question that we'll deal with next week, please God. And then we'll move on to the end of the vision and the end of chapter nine. As I said, it's great to be back. Um, I wish everybody a great week, a great Shabbos. And same time, same place. We should all meet again in health and happiness um, next Monday night, the next Monday afternoon at 5.30. Call to, to everybody. Great to be back. Bye. Thank you, everybody. See you in the morning, Harry. Yes, please God. Please God.